Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Influence on your money with Money FM 89.3. Dr. Kevin Blackburn is my guest today in Influencies Associate Professor in History at the National Institute of Education, Nanyang Technological University. And Dr. Blackburn has a new book out. It's called The Comfort Women of Singapore in History and Memory. Japanese military veterans who fought during the occupation saw Singapore as an island for their sexual pleasure. Singapore was a major centre of comfort stations for ordinary Japanese soldiers and administrators, Koreans, Japanese, Chinese, Taiwanese, Europeans, Indonesians, as well as local Singapore women worked in the Japanese military's sex industry here in Singapore. The comfort station at Canehill Road in the city area was among the first of the stations to be set up. Once the city of Singapore was secured at the end of February 1942. The military confiscated the terrace homes of the wealthy Pranakan Chinese on Cane Hill and turned them into comfort stations run by a male brothel manager from Korea and a very well-known Taiwanese woman. We're going to dive deeper into the details that this book offers. It takes us to these comfort stations that were in service uh, of the Japanese military during the occupation of Singapore. Dr. Kevin Blackburn, again, is author of The Comfort Women of Singapore in history and memory. Good morning, Dr. Blackburn. How are you? Why did you want to publish this book? Uh, good morning, Michelle. Um, I wanted to publish the book so I could answer two questions. One was, uh, there's always been some question mark over the possibility of the existence of local Singapore comfort women. And uh, as time has passed on, there's a danger that uh, there will be the perception that these women didn't exist and uh, usually when comfort women are listed in terms of countries, mm-hmm. Singapore doesn't seem to have any comfort women, according to the, the bigger picture. So I wanted to give the evidence that there were local women who were sexually enslaved as comfort women. And then second of all, I wanted to um, demonstrate you know, why these women have remained silent. This is connected to the first question, is that, uh, yeah, why had these women chosen not to come forward to tell their stories? This uh, is important, actually, because in many other Asian countries, women have come forward uh, to basically demand justice and compensation. In Singapore, that that never happened, actually. So I wanted to address these two questions, uh, which are quite important uh, in terms of studying the comfort women, not just in Singapore, but elsewhere too. Many women in other countries also didn't come forward as well because of the the dominance of... um, Male, male patriarchal societies meant that coming forward, you know, you risked ostracization, mm. uh, you risked a kind of stigmatization. So I, I see what happened in Singapore as similar elsewhere as well. Very few comfort women did come forward and give their testimony uh, in the 1990s, predominantly in Korea, where they had the support of their own government and uh, women women's groups as well. In other countries, you don't really have that type of situation. Uh, so Singapore is similar to other countries where only a few came forward uh, or none at all. Can we also understand why so few came forward in Singapore? Because A, it's, it's a painful part of their history to talk about and B, as a function of social mobility, if women in Singapore were able to improve their lives, um, this may be a part of their history they didn't want to discuss. Is that a possible reason why so few women in Singapore came forward? Almost definitely that is the reason, actually, that women didn't want to come forward because after the war, there was a stigma. 
these women were actually not even you know allowed to actually go back to their own communities and families who didn't want them. So what they did was uh, continue on uh, street walking instead of being in the compass stations, which were closed down. Uh, they were walking along, you know, Jalam Basar offering sexual services. This became noticed by the colonial government, and they quickly shut it down. The ones that were under 18 were sent to a girls' training school. So this is the stigma that they went through uh, in this period of um, transition to, you know, post-war colonial society, they were ostracized. And uh, what happened was that they, they were able to basically reintegrate into society, but the cost was silence. You see this elsewhere in Korea. You see it also in other Asian countries too. Uh, in the 1990s, there was a prospect that they, they could break that silence. But once again, uh, I think uh, the small numbers in Singapore suggest that uh, basically these women were reluctant to do this, as indeed many women were reluctant to do it. Only a handful of brave women did actually. Uh, in Singapore, you have the possibility of being stigmatized again, um, and basically, you know, basically your social status would be diminished by admitting that you're involved in um, activities such as sex, by, sex work. I'd love to talk about how Singapore treated comfort women uh, or rehabilitated or helped them reintegrate into society in just a while. But first, take us back in history. Help us understand where does this term, comfort women, come from? The term comes from uh, the Japanese. Uh, it's an exact translation of the Japanese term, yanfu. Uh, basically, it means comfort women. It's a euphemism for sexual slavery. Um, women were basically also put into comfort stations, which was a euphemism for places of sexual slavery. So basically, the Japanese military used these terms to you know, conceal or, or to paint in a more you know, rosy light what these women were doing, actually. It's a Japanese term. Um, what did you want to do in this book to help shed light in terms of the history of Singapore's comfort stations? What is it so few of us know about? You write so interestingly about how there was a school, quite a well-known school, uh, next to a comfort station and the, the plight of the poor headmaster dealing with the situation. Uh, but what do you think few of us understand about the history of comfort stations here in Singapore? Um. I try to document as many as possible, and they seem to be all over the place, actually, in terms of Singapore was a major center, even before the Japanese arrived, for prostitution. But during the Japanese occupation, the Japanese made you know, prostitution uh, legal, actually. So this meant that their own their own comfort stations and brothels were legal, and then local business people started setting up uh, their, their, their you know, brothels as well, uh, mainly for Japanese clientele. Uh, if you look at the comfort stations, they're in places today that we, we wouldn't fig figure you know, were, were kind of these places of sexual slavery. Um, as you mentioned, there's one at Canhill Road. There's also one behind the Sentosa Waxworks. There's a big one uh, along Tanjong Kotong Road. Um, in Bukapaso, in Chinatown, there was also one. So even uh, there's others that uh, are in surprising places, like uh, I document uh, uh, one in Onan Road, actually, and my publisher who, who lives in that road was surprised to find that his own house might have been a comfort station, actually, because he discovered when he was renovating you know, that there were Japanese newspapers in the walls, actually. So, wow. Yeah. Wow, I have a friend living on Onan Road. I can't wait to send him this podcast. Um, how do you think comfort women have come to be shaped in popular imagination in the uh, 1990s, 2000s, and perhaps uh, in present history? 
Uh, I'll focus on Singapore because that's a big question. Sure. Um, in Singapore, um, once the controversy erupted in December 1991, there were you know I, I kind of attempts to actually make representations of them in uh, you know films in, in uh, on TV and in theatre. Initially, it was you know representing women who were Taiwanese or Korean. Actually, it, it seemed to be that no local women were coming forward. So maybe it was the case that no local women were comfort women. So in the in the 90s, we we see in Singapore popular culture representations of Taiwanese women, of Japanese women, of Korean women. It's only later on when there's a a little bit of research done um, by some of the directors you know, in the theatre and some of the producers in the television industry uh, that we start to see uh, local Singapore women uh, appear uh, alongside their Korean counterparts, their Taiwanese counterparts in uh, Singapore dramas, uh, in, in Singapore plays. I think uh, the most well-known play um, that you know was done was called uh, Hayat Hayati, a Malay play that uh, was a critique of of Singapore society, as well as a critique of the comfort women system. It basically tried to explain some of the silences uh, that the comfort women uh, endured, uh, and uh, it also critiqued, you know, basically uh, the reason why those silences in the post-war world were, were present in terms of male domination, in terms of the, the stigma that the society had allowed to go on for too long related to this type of sex work. Well, speaking of silences, Dr. Blackburn, whose stories do you tell in this book? Well, when I look at the the women themselves, often it's using the the testimony of uh, uh, women who were from Korea who actually talked about uh, what it was like, you know, working here. Women from Indonesia also have talked about what it was like working here. Local women have remained silent. So in their case, I've tried to get uh, testimony from, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, people who knew them quite well, their, their close friends or their, their stepsister, you know, their, their cousin or whatever, who'll describe how they were abducted in the early days of the Japanese occupation and ended up in a comfort station. Uh, I've looked at other sources that indicate that local women uh, were also present when you know we look at these comfort stations there there's lots of japanese soldiers going to them and often they'll talk about uh, eurasian women uh, they'll talk about malay women local chinese women uh they write it down in their memoirs uh they'll talk about captured you know european women as well uh all this will be recorded in their memoirs uh, you know up until the 90s it was you know not seen as something to be ashamed of if you were a soldier going to these places so yeah you have a, a long history of of this record from the Japanese soldiers' own memoirs. Dr. Blackburn, here in Singapore, was anything done to recognize and help these women sort of reintegrate into society in a different role, perhaps? Yes, as we see, at the end of the war... uh, the, the colonial government wanted to get rid of, you know, these these women who'd been part of the the Japanese sex industry. Um, the military, their own military, the British military, you know, saw them as uh, just sources of venereal disease. Uh, so they wanted to clean up uh, um, the sex the sex industry that had been you know, a legacy of of the Japanese occupation. So what happened was that. Uh, um, the colonial government uh, uh, wanted to just round them up, um, but there was one, you know, brave woman uh, who was uh, on the legislative council, uh, on the on the advisory council, and she advocated just, you know, 
perhaps uh, you know basically putting them into other jobs or basically putting them into a kind of school or whatever. So eventually they, they put them into the ones who are under 18 into a girls' training school and uh, they responded quite well to the desire to get out of the sex industry, which was inherently exploitative, you know, afterwards as well. You know, you had no protection afterwards, after the Japanese occupation. Um, the Japanese comfort stations did, you know, maintain some kind of health standards. Uh, they, they insisted that the Japanese soldiers uh, use condoms. But after the war, of course, uh, when they were in the private sphere, just street walking, these women, uh, you know, basically uh, were, were in a more precarious situation. So what happened was that, yeah, the, the colonial government did, uh, you know, gradually, you know, kind of introduce skills, uh, introduce kind of homemaking skills. The object was that, you know, by going to the girls' training school, that, that they could uh, reintegrate into society as wives of perhaps Chinese men who couldn't forward, afford a bride from overseas. Uh, and once this happened, uh, they could also uh, kind of begin families or they could also work as maids. So there was this kind of attempt to, you know, move them into society, reintegrate them into society, uh, and but of course, you know, the, there was stigma around this. So you know, obviously, the best thing was to keep quiet about you know, what had happened during the war. There have been calls from politicians all around the world, uh, even here in Singapore, from Singapore, uh, for Japan to acknowledge and apologize to the enslaved women who formed um, this service. Um, in the 90s here in Singapore. I'm just curious, was there anything anywhere in the world by way of mental health support from any of these countries to help these women reintegrate to post-war life? In the, the societies immediately after 1945, there, there was nothing, of course, because uh, you know it was seen as you know very shameful. Society was very patriarchal. Uh, women who engaged in any type of sex work were were were, were ostracised in Korea as well. It's only with the rise of the uh, feminist movement and women's, you know, organisations and the offer of support that these women's organisations gave the comfort women of Korea, uh, but also Japan to some extent, but mainly in Korea, that we see this kind of, uh, you know, kind of situation where the women, if they come out, you know, and tell their story, demand justice and compensation, they won't just simply be left by themselves. Uh, there'll be support from uh, NGOs, there'll be support from sympathetic governments. In Southeast Asia, you just, you just don't get that, you know. And uh, some women in Malaysia actually did did come out, and uh, basically they they really was their little support at all, actually. And uh, yeah, basically they never really got uh, in their lifetime uh, what they wanted, which was justice in particular, but also compensation. So. For many women who didn't come out and saw what happened to others who did, uh, that sent a message. Basically, it was better to be quiet. You know, it's, it was better not to actually reveal your your sexual background, um, your sexual history, uh, because you know, basically, all you'd get is no compensation, and basically, you you your 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 character would be blemished in the the eyes of many in society. Yeah, irreparably. We are reading The Comfort Women of Singapore in History and Memory by Dr. Kevin Blackburn. Dr. Blackburn, before you go, I'm going to put you on the spot right now. We always invite guests on this show to hashtag read it forward. Can you share a book that you've read recently that has uh, made an impact on you? Well, 
it's probably the book that I read uh, just before I read this book. It was, it was a fictional account of uh, the comfort women of Singapore, local women. Uh, it was How We Disappeared by Jing Jing Lee, actually. That, that I reread it recently, um, but uh, it, it really was, you know, quite a powerful, you know, kind of fictional account of, you know, local women who were abducted. Um, but of course, it was fiction. So it, it, I always kind of go back and reread parts of it in a sense because it, it was very well written as a, as, a, as a story written by a Singaporean author uh, about uh, her own country and yeah. about something. She yeah, thanks to. for sharing. That's a great read. <laughs> I, I couldn't forget the start. You know, it's really, really compelling. Thank you, Dr. Blackburn. We appreciate it. Uh, you're listening to Money FM 89.3. I'm Michelle Martin. And again, we're reading The Comfort Women of Singapore in History and Memory, a new book available on bookshelves. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.